later I'll actually go back to them and say, listen, you're paying 8% with me. The bank right now is offering four. Here's what that looks like. And I'll print out an amortization chart and say, so this is how much money you'd save if you can get refinanced at your bank. Why don't you go talk to them and see if they'll refinance you. And then I get paid off that full balance that I got at a discount. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. What's the real power of leverage? People think real estate is all about leveraging capital. Money is important, but what about the decisions we make? The things we do and don't do determine our success as investors. Choices and actions create success. Before we get to the bank, we make choices guided by mindset and by the things we do and don't know. If we want to succeed as investors, we need to leverage knowledge. We need to increase what we know so our actions pay bigger dividends. Join host Terry Schauer and Jean-Philippe Claude for conversations with leading experts in the real estate field. From mortgages to mindset and from macroeconomics to local market trends, grow your knowledge capital with us. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast, where we seek advice to help us make better investing decisions. Hello, and welcome back to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast, a podcast dedicated to real estate investing in Quebec. Hi, Terry. How Hi. are you today? I'm great, Axel. How are you? Stressed, but that's okay. Life is good anyways. A lot, on the, a lot in the pipeline right now, but that's not why we're here today. Today, we're going to have a really fun conversation with our friend Nathan Turner. How's it going, man? Very good. Thank you. Very good. So Nathan, you are the Canadian note guy. So I guess you're from Canada. And if people say that is because maybe you work a lot in the US and they know you as the Canadian guy and you invest in notes. And we find that fascinating because it's a way to invest in real estate. So before we go any further, what yeah. the hell is yeah. note investing? Yeah, because I don't understand it all. So <laughs> break it down for us. It's funny when I, when I tell people what I do and I say I buy US mortgage notes and Half of the people I talk to go, oh, <laughs> kind of space out. And then the other half go, what? What is that? That sounds really cool. I'm like, yeah, it is. It is very cool. Here's the very, the, just the basics breakdown. Somebody goes to buy a house in the US. To buy a house, nobody has cash. So you got to go to a bank to get a loan. We call that loan a mortgage. So you get the, you know, we'll call them Jim. Jim goes to the, to the bank to get a loan from Chase Bank. He's going along and everything's great and he's making payments. And then all of a sudden something like 2008 happens and we've got serious issues and he's not able to make payments. So he's, he's not able to make, this is the non-performing side. And this is what I mostly do. I, I also do the performing and performing means paying or not paying. So it, something will happen. Jim's not able to make payments, lost his job, got divorced or somebody died him or somebody in the family. Those are kind of the top three reasons why somebody stops paying on the mortgage. The bank now has a problem because they could, and the, the remedy for that situation is for them to foreclose on the property, sell the house to be able to recoup their investment. 99% of the time, the bank does not want to do that. They're not set up to be homeowners. They're not set up to have a whole bunch of properties as their inventory. It's just, it's not what banks do. Banks lend money and collect interest. It's what they do. So we had this huge fallout in 2008 and I got started in 2008-9 and my first non-performing note purchase was in 2010 where I bought a package of three loans all based in Columbus, Ohio 
where the people had stopped paying on their mortgage. So I bought those loans. Well, indirectly, I bought them from the bank. Well, just to keep it easy. So I bought them from the bank. Um, now I step into the role as the bank. So I am now the banker. The bank is now totally out of the picture. Whoever it was, Bank of America, Chase, whoever, they're totally out of the picture. Now I am the bank. So then now I can go to the borrower, the person who initially created that loan and say, okay, so we've got a problem here. Uh, you're not making payments. Can you tell me what happened? Where are you at today? What can we do to help you get back on track? And 99% of the time, if we can have a conversation, we can work something out and get them making payments again, which is ideal. And that's certainly what we strive for. And so we can get people making payments. And then instead of being a landlord, I'm a lean lord. I'm the bank. So I don't, I don't have to fix the house. It's not my house. It's the person living in the house. It's their house. So I just get to collect monthly payments as if it was rent, but it's a principal and interest payment. And the person living in the house does all the repairs, all the upkeep, all the everything to the house. And that's what I do. You're kind of the collections agency in a weird way. Sometimes. Sometimes I put that hat on where I'm the, I'm the collection agency. And I read a really great book when I was first getting started called, I forget, but his name is Bill Bartman. And this guy, he would go out and buy credit card debt, unsecured debt, and same kind of thing. So same sort of thing, but for him, there's no collateral. He's got just a balance that he's trying to collect on with nothing to back it up. So if he collects, great. And if he doesn't collect, there's nothing he can do about it. He, you know, maybe he can get a judgment or something, but that's about as far as that could go. And one of the things he said in there was he found through his experience in, in making these collections is that when you treat people with dignity and respect, not only is that the humane thing to do, but it actually is more effective. And so I very much, that, that fits with my personality. And so I very much took that to heart and that's, that's what I do. So collection agency, I oftentimes gets a bad rap and I don't actually consider myself a collection agency at all. I'm a bank yeah. and I'm just doing whatever we can do to get people back on track to an agreement they have already agreed to however many years ago. Okay. And one thing to clarify, because people might be wondering, like, I was going to say, what's in it for you? Because if you buy for $50,000, like $50,000 worth of payments, that's not really attractive. Yeah. And so you're obviously buying these at a discount. So yeah, yes, I'm buying at a discount. So if the balance is $50,000, I, I might pay 35. So I'll pay 35,000. So then for the right to collect 50. Okay. So the, one of the cool things about that, there's so many cool things about this, but one of the cool things about that is the borrower, the person that's making the payments, he has no idea. There's no public record of what I paid for it. So he has no idea that I got it at a discount. So now I'm able to actually make more money besides his regular interest rate. I'm still going to make that interest rate, whatever it's set at. Plus I, my return is actually higher because I bought it at a discount. Yeah. So how do you get into something like this? Because it seems to me like, you know, this is now, I think the third time I've heard this explanation. I think I'm beginning to understand it now. So, but how do you yeah. go from, you know, doing whatever you do to like buying notes, right? Like what's the path that you yeah. to get there? Cause it's, it's <laughs> a very weird, like niche space to be in. It is. It definitely is. And, and in Canada, I'm, I'm really, I'm really one of the few people that does this from Canada. Even in the U.S., it's really unknown. Most people don't know about this. It's a small group. We all pretty much know each other. We meet at conferences and stuff and, hey, how's it going? And it's, it's a pretty tight-knit group. 
So I started my kind of my real estate career flipping houses. So I was living here just outside of Montreal in St. Bruno. And I got into a conversation at one point where somebody said, oh, the housing market in Saskatoon is really booming. And I'm like, Saskatoon? (laughs) I've been there, not much going on. I would be surprised if that's a hot market. This is back in like 2006. And so I had a friend living there and I called him up and I said, how's Saskatoon? And he says, you mean Saskaboom? I'm like, really? (laughs) And so I, I started flipping properties from here in Saskatoon. So I would buy the house sight unseen. I was working with a realtor out there. And then I'd pack up my suitcase full of tools and a sleeping bag, go out there and work like crazy for a week or two and sell the house. And, and the market was really hot. So most of the time I had it sold before I came home, which was great. So that was kind of my introduction. Fast forward a couple of years where all of a sudden the market turned. I had one property that I wasn't able to resell where I just got stuck with it. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'll just... I'll be a landlord because that's what people do. And I started renting it out and it was cash flow was great. Everything else about it was terrible. I didn't like it at all, especially at a distance. My property manager, he was the only guy in the whole city of Saskatoon, 200,000 people. He was the only one that would take on one single family property to manage. And I tried several times because this guy was terrible. In the middle of the month, every month I would have to call him and be like, Hey, did we get paid this month? Like, are, is everything okay? Is uh, Can I expect a payment? Oh, yeah, yeah, let me just do some accounting. Uh, yeah, for sure, It's we've got this. And, you know, third, fourth week of the month, I would finally get a check every single month for a couple of years. And I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> so it was, it was challenging. And anytime somebody moved out, I figured it was actually cheaper for me to fly out myself, do whatever repairs were needed, and then fly back here. And like everything about it was just, it was hard and just a lot of work for whatever it was, four or $500 a month. And then, like I say, and I appreciated the cash, but it was an awful lot of work going into this thing and, and energy and everything else. And I'm like, that's kind of nuts. And so it, it was kind of an organic thing where connections, networking, all that stuff. A friend of mine called me who had recently moved to the States and said, hey, I, I networked into these guys that bought a bunch of properties and they're stuck with them. This was like fall of 2008 and everything was starting to go nuts. And they, they had this portfolio of 60 properties that wasn't going anywhere there. It was not being able to be sold or anything. And it was trouble. So I went down and checked them out and we thought we'd kind of created this thing called seller financing. We didn't even know that's what it's called. We just, we call it selling houses on terms, which was not nearly a a sexy name, but <laughs> that's what we came up with. So we, the idea was we're selling a house as if you were selling a car where it's monthly payments and the person in the house is the one who does all the repairs, all the upkeep and everything else. So that was kind of the idea. We thought we'd invented it. And then more and more research, more networking, found out this is a thing. Went to a conference in 2009. I took a class actually before that. And then went to a conference in 2009 and they started talking about notes and seller financing and this and that and everything. I'm like, oh my goodness, people do this? This is a thing? And that was kind of where that went and, and met a guy who talked about having these non-performing notes and it took me a little bit to get my head around that. And I said, so what, like, how does that work? And what if they don't pay? And all those kinds of questions that everybody has and, and kind of went from there and kept building and up to last year where I opened up a fund. Uh, now I'm getting investors to invest into a fund so I can go out and buy more and more of these notes because 
it's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. And what I really like about it is that you've turned this real estate option into yeah. a, a purely finance tool. Yeah. You know, everybody who gets into this, almost everybody, including myself, comes from a real estate background. And that's mm-hmm. fine. But the thing to kind of get your head around is you'll have an easier time if this, if you come from a finance background, that's a better fit. It just happens to be secured by real estate. Okay. That's fine. But really this is, it's a finance game. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can just explain what the obstacles are to doing this in Canada, because this seems to be like a pretty American model. Does this work in Canada? It does not. Canada is so responsible and, and our lending is so, you know, strict strict, (laughs) but be, and, and that's great. But on the other hand, this opportunity doesn't exist because of that. Why specifically? CMHC. So they insure, what is it? 90, 95% of all loans ever created all mortgages. I think it's like 80, but they have the higher risk ones where the person has less equity in, right? The only ones that they don't insure are the 80% financing, which is chances are going to be less risky. Right. But, you know, however, whatever that number is, it's a big number. And then if somebody quits paying, well, the CMHC has got it insured. So the bank has no reason to resell that loan. Because of the inherent existence of CMHC, there's actually no market. Right. No, no bank would want to resell a non-performing because there is no such thing as a non-performing. Right. So there are, you know, a small handful of private mortgage lenders in Canada. To my knowledge, I've had, uh, it's been a couple of years since I've talked to him, but to my knowledge, they don't resell their loans. They don't need to. It's a small enough industry that they will go ahead and foreclose and take back a property and just be done. Mm-hmm. So it just, unfortunately, doesn't work in Canada versus the United States where there are thousands of banks and it, it, you can set it up as if it's like a regular business and you can just set up a bank and you can have one location. You know, we're not talking about a national bank. You've got one bank in that town and that's it or, you know, maybe a couple in that county or something like that. So it's very, very, you know, local, very geospecific, and it can be, or it can be, you know, a big Chase Bank or a Bank of America where it's nationwide. And so, but because of that, it creates a ton of competition. So this is going back into history a little bit, but the run up into 2008, lending standards were ridiculous because in part, because there's this huge competition. So those guys are offering 40-year mortgages. Okay, we'll do that too. These guys are saying no down payment. Okay, we'll do that too. And it kind of became a thing where they they kind of had to just to compete with everybody else. And so it just got out of control where the joke is, you know, if you could fog a mirror, you could get a loan. And that's kind of what it got down to where people were way underqualified for these mortgages, but they were getting them anyway. That kind of created the huge glut of non-performing mortgages, but the average default rate in the U.S. over the last 20 years is four and a half percent. So, you know, when you're talking about 300 million people, 4% of 300 million is still a pretty big number. And that's a lot of defaults. Yeah. Well, it's when I read the statistics, it's like, I think in in the U.S. is one in 20 homeowners uh, gets foreclosed, whereas in Canada, it's one in 900. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) As you said, very responsible Canada. I'm curious today, like, are those same conditions at work? Like, do you feel like there's a lot of, you know, not non-performing mortgages getting signed? Like what's your kind of boots on the ground feel of the, of the ecosystem right now? So it's really interesting because in 2019, 
kind of the, the talk with the different node investors is like, something's coming, you know, we're right on the edge. We're past the regular cycle of housing going up and down. And, and we're all just kind of waiting. Okay, here we go. The next shoe's going to drop any second now. So COVID hit in March of 2020 and everybody's like, okay, brace yourselves. This is it. And, and we all expected a huge default wave and it didn't happen. And in large part, that's because government propped it up and they, they were sending out free money to everybody. So there were a lot of people that definitely took advantage of that. Some people needed it. A lot of people did not. And then there, it was just free money. So we're starting to see that same thing we're seeing a couple of years ago in 2019, where it's like, okay, housing is starting to slow down a little bit. Markets aren't quite as crazy as they were even just three or four or five, six months ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, changes in the air. And my brother-in-law has a theory that market crashes tend to happen in the fall. So I'm like, okay. If I, Historically, if yeah. Yeah. In October. Yeah. So we'll see. And what happens to you if something like that happens? Like what happens to the guy who's holding the paper at that time? So a couple of things. First of all, we go, okay, great. Now we've got more inventory, more chances to help people who are struggling that banks are not equipped to help. I remember when I first got started, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't, but uh, you'll get what they call it the collateral file. So that's a copy of the note and mortgage. That's a copy of you know, application form, insurance forms, like, uh, you know, whatever you sign when you go to get a mortgage, all of that. It's a big file folder full of paper. And that's what I get. And especially in the beginning, I would also get like offer letters from the bank where it's like, okay, you owe whatever it is, $50,000. We will say that everything's even if you pay us $25,000 by the end of the month. It's like, okay, thanks. But they still don't have $25,000, do they? So, it, you know, they're kind of empty promises, empty offers that just they didn't really mean anything. But there's so much public outcry for the banks. They've got to do something. So, they, yes, we're helping people and we're sending out offers, and, but there's garbage. So, I, you know, and I, I'm hearing on the radio, the Vermont stations where no money down loans are being advertised on the radio and all these kinds of things. I mean, it's getting back to the same kind of thing that we were looking at not too many years ago. Something's going to happen. Yeah. And obviously the lending criteria is a huge part into that. And in the effect is there's a certain amount of lead time. It takes probably years for that bubble to build up and then eventually it bursts. And then hopefully you're there to pick up some of it. Going back to, to Terry's question, oh, like, yeah. would there be a yes. situation or a way where you would get wiped out? It would be extremely rare. The property, the house itself is my collateral. Yeah. So if we saw the same kind of thing that happened in 2008, where house prices went down by, you know, anywhere from 10% to 50%, it's possible. We could see that. The house, again, is still my collateral, even if the value is much lower. I may take a hit, but for me to get wiped out is almost impossible. Nothing's impossible. I'll say almost impossible though. Mm -hmm. Besides that, I've got the house insured, even if it burns down in some cases, I was going to say, just for listeners to understand like the process, because it's, it's hard to picture like how you go about in getting access even to the mortgages. So could we just take a few minutes so you yeah. can walk us through what does a standard transaction look like from your perspective? Sure. So I'll back up one more step. So where do you find these things? Yeah. Networking, 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 networking. Like I say, my very first conference I went to was in 2009. And I've been attending conferences since then. 
and I'm the Canadian guy. I'm the only one in the room. <laughs> yeah, you know, there'll be 500, 600 people and I'm the only Canadian there. So I, I've been able to kind of stick out that way, which is great. And then part of the other half of that is getting noticed is great, but then you've got to do what you say you're going to do. Like, for example, in real estate, oftentimes you do kind of the shotgun approach where you, you put out 10 different offers on 10 different properties and we'll see what happens. No way. You cannot do that in notes. If you say, if you put in an offer and say, I want to buy this particular note, if you don't have a really good reason and you don't go ahead with that, you'll, like I say, it's a very small community. So it's like, oh, there's that Nathan guy. Well, puts in all these offers, but he never falls through. So it's, it's too small of a community for people to pull junk, which is really great. It helps keep everybody above board, which is nice. Um, so I've networked into, you know, a couple of dozen of these different, usually the way it goes is larger hedge funds is who I'm buying from. They've got more money than I do. And they, they're the ones that buy from banks. So they're doing 50 or hundred million dollar trades with banks. And then I'm buying from these hedge funds where I'm buying, you know, 50,000, hundred thousand kind of trades with them. They will send me a list and it's usually on a spreadsheet and it tells me, you know, the address of the property. Oftentimes I get the owner's name, which in most cases I don't care unless it says estate of so-and-so. And then that makes a difference. I've got what the unpaid principal balance is, what the interest rate is, the last time they made a payment, when the loan started and when's the maturity date, when, when does it run its course? Just kind of, you know, general loan information. And then I go through that list and I've kind of developed my own system and everyone's got their own. It's fun to kind of compare notes with other note investors, but things that matter to me and, and ways that I evaluate. So for example, I look at like, if it's a town that I don't recognize, I'll go and Google it. And if the population is less than 20,000 people, that's too small. If I end up taking back that property and I'm always kind of thinking worst case, but if I end up taking back that property to resell it in a town of 5,000 people is going to be tough. So I usually stay away from that kind of thing. And then I also look at like certain states, their foreclosure laws are just wacky. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm kind of planning for the worst, but states like New York and New Jersey, New York is probably the worst in the country, maybe with the possible exception of Hawaii, actually, but a foreclosure in New York, easily two years, probably more like three. And that's the state. If you're in the city, longer, more like four or five years. So, and I don't have patience for that. So I, I don't do that. But places like Texas, they've got very fast, fast foreclosures. So I look at Texas, Tennessee's got fast foreclosures almost everywhere else is okay. It's just kind of the New England area. They've got, they use kind of older laws and, you know, backed up systems and they're a pain. So I, I typically stay away from New England, but pretty much everywhere else is game. So then I'll go through that list and just decide, okay, so based on these numbers, let's say their unpaid balance is a hundred thousand interest rate is at seven, 8% monthly payment is $700 a month. Last time they made a payment that can tell a story. And a lot of these things, I'm kind of trying to piece together what happened in the past so that I can know where to pick up now. So if the, if the last time they made a payment was six months ago, that's actually fairly recent. And that there's a very good chance that I'm going to be able to get them making payments again. If it was three years ago, eh, that's tougher. And in fact, if it was three years ago, chances of that house being vacant are much higher. So, and again, that just plays into what's the possible scenarios that could happen here. Three year 
since they made a payment, I'm probably going to have to go with a foreclosure. I may be able to do what they call a deed in lieu of foreclosure, where I, I just say, hey, you've got this loan outstanding. There's really no way that you're going to be able to catch up on this. I'll actually pay you to move out, you know, first, first and last month's rent to your next place and help you move on because the reality is you can't afford this place. And we'll have that conversation from time to time. Just we'll do like a short sale, all kinds of things. So people yeah. can live in a place for three years without paying their mortgage? That's it's what insane. I was going to say. Like within three months, it'd be like a 30 day, 60, 90 day notice. And then the yeah. bank like. It's insane. So the bigger banks will sell these huge packages. They may not have touched it for six months just because, ah, what do we do? What do we do? I don't know. Sell it. And it'll take some time for that to kind of process to get done. They sell it off to a larger hedge fund. The larger hedge fund says, okay, we only like property values over 250,000. So then they'll spend some time on that. And then, and then it'll get assigned to this guy that says, okay, we need to sell off the rest of this stuff. They might sell it in a bigger package to another hedge fund. The other hedge fund will go through whatever process they do. And then it goes to somebody like me where I'm like, no, 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 I'll buy that one. And by then it's been a year, you know, just kind of nobody's even looked at it. Nobody's tried anything. So it's happened before where I've called the borrower and I'll say, Hey, so I, I now own your loan. You got the paperwork, you know, saying that now I'm the, I'm the guy that owns the loan. Let's start a conversation and like, Oh, that's great. I didn't know who to pay, which a few years ago was very, very common. They revised the laws so that they shouldn't be able to say that, but sometimes they still do where loans were getting sold left and right. And it was very common where people really actually had no idea who owned the loan, where to make payments. How do I even move forward? Okay. So then when, when you pick up the phone and someone tells you this, like, oh, great, I didn't know who to pay. So then you would just say, what? Like, oh, here's basically like send me a wire every month for 700 bucks and, and we're good for the next 10 years. I mean, it's potentially, incredible. yeah. That's literally what it is though. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I use, it's called a servicing company. It's kind of like a property manager for your loans. So I'll say, so I don't actually collect the payments myself. I say, so we'll get you set up. I use a company called Land Home Financial. We'll get you set up with Land Home. They'll debit your account every month or you send them a check or however you set it up. And we're off to the list. The part that is a little bit more of a, of a conversation is, okay, so you haven't made a payment for the last couple of years. You've got all these arrears sitting there where you know, you missed payments and some penalties on there, some, you know, late payment fees, that kind of thing. So it's a $5,000, you know, balance just to get you reinstated so that you can pick up where you left off and we'll figure out what to do with that. And sometimes, yeah, I've, I've got $5,000 I can put down for that. Sometimes it's, I can do 3000 and then we'll say, okay. And then I've got the option. I've, I'm super flexible. So I can say, okay, given your situation, I understand where you're coming from, blah, blah, blah. We can wipe out that $2,000. We can tack it back onto the loan. We can, you know, $800 was your previous payment. Now you say you can only do six. Okay, so let's get out the calculator and see how that works out. So it's all kinds of just kind of figuring out. And then we'll write something up that details the new agreement. I'll send it to Landhome. They start collecting payments. And so let, let me ask another question because, because like, let's say here, when you sign a, a mortgage, like it will have a five-year, three-year term or something. So the stuff that you buy, it's that three-year term or it's like the full amortization that you're buying. Yeah. Here's the cool thing. In the U.S., it's always a full amortization. They don't have terms. If they do, they do, they call it a balloon. 
but it's rare. So it's really rare, actually. Almost all loans are just terms. So if it's a 30-year amortized loan, that is your term. So if it's, you know, whatever it is, 6%, 7%, for $500 a month. Like it carries the same interest rate for the whole time. For the whole time. Oh, that's crazy. How do yeah. people renegotiate mortgages there? Or don't they? I don't know. I don't think they do. I've been on that can. side. Really? Yeah. It's like France. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like you signed at a particular interest rate for 30, 40 years. Wow. That's it. That's crazy. That's, yeah. Yeah. And then again, I can go in and say, okay, so whatever, you know, your old interest rate is 5%. Uh, my minimum is 8%. So if we want to get you back on track, that's great. 8% is the best I can do for an interest rate. Most of the time, they don't care. What they care about is what's the monthly payment. Yeah. So if I can work the calculator and say, okay, so if we're going to 8%, but we want to keep their payment at 500, then we'll have to stretch out the amortization period. And I can do that on the calculator and figure out how to do that. And great. From their perspective, $500 a month is $500 a month. Yeah. And in most cases, they don't care. That's fine. Later, I'll actually go back to them and say, listen, you're paying 8% with me. The bank right now is offering four. Here's what that looks like. And I'll print out an amortization chart and say, so this is how much money you'd save if you can get refinanced at your bank. Why don't you go talk to them and see if they'll refinance you. And then I get paid off that full balance that I got at a discount. So that's another charge. I mean, they're so oh, interesting. So it's pure finance. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's fun. It's very much a thinking game and you're just, okay, so how can we make this a little bit better and negotiate it this way or that way? And it's great. And just to get some a ballpark over the lifetime that you've been investing in these notes, like roughly how many mortgages have you purchased and how many times have you foreclosed? Since 2010, gosh, three or 400. Okay. And how many foreclosures? How many foreclosures? My foreclosures are probably, I would say they're going to be higher than others because I don't mind buying a loan on a vacant property. So if it's vacant, I'm going to foreclose because yeah. they're not going to make payments. They're not there. So given that, I probably foreclose maybe 50% of the time. 50? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It's pretty common. Yeah. Okay. And like I say, almost always, that's because it's vacant. Mm-hmm. If there's somebody living there, we can almost always figure something out and mm-hmm. come up with some payment plan. Okay. Then you just resell the house. Yeah. I usually just wholesale it. It's usually a local investor that picks it up and they're going to do whatever they're going to do with it. Sometimes then I'll do a seller finance and go back to what I started with, where I will sell it on terms and they'll give me whatever, a 10% down payment. My ideal in that situation is I do a 10% down payment, a 10% interest rate amortized over 10 years. And that's a fairly high payment. So it doesn't always work. And sometimes I stretch out the amortization, but that's kind of my ideal. That's what I strive for. And are there no rules to this? Because my understanding is that like in Canada, there's like rules to mortgages, right? Isn't there? And like, so are there rules to this in the US? There are, there are. And so that's part of the whole thing is you, you've got to learn what you're doing because you, you could get yourself into a bunch of trouble. So even things like the interest rate, especially it's state by state. So for example, Pennsylvania, the rule in Pennsylvania is for an interest rate, if I'm going to sell or finance a house, I cannot charge more than 3% above the posted rate at that time. So if today's rate is 4%, I can charge no more than 7%. And, and so you got to know that because then if you charge eight or 9%, the attorney general calls and says, Hey, what are you doing? And you get all kinds of trouble. Yeah. 
Man, I had friends that had that call and it's not fun. Fun call. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, like a lot of situation like that. This is really interesting and we could keep going for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, for those who are interested, what's the best way to uh, find out more about you? So <laughs> here's the kind of the fun thing. I don't actually teach this stuff. Not usually. I have a class and I've got a course. And I have actually June 3rd and 4th did a class and that's great. The last time I did that was four years ago. I'm not actually interested that much in teaching this as much as I love talking about it. I, eh, I actually love doing it more. Yeah. So I'm more than happy to talk to people and, and help them get started. I've recorded my class. And if people want to do that, great. If they want further education, I'll refer you to somebody else. Good friends of mine that do a fantastic job. All that being said, you can email me or call me. Let's see. Let's go with the cell phone number 514-980-5727. Or you can email me, Nathan at CanadianNoteGuy.com. Or on LinkedIn. I think that's how I connected with Or on LinkedIn. So you can turn her on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on there. I don't have a huge online presence. I don't, I like face-to-face. Yeah. So okay. I don't do a lot online. Good. Well, look, if anyone is interested, they can find you on LinkedIn or the contact information that you, uh, that you provided. Thank you very much. Any words of wisdom, uh, Terry? I think it's Nathan who should have the words. That's of true. Oh, there you go. That's, you got a whole book of words of wisdom. Be mindful. That was a really great read. That was a really great read. Yeah. Mindful by Terry Shower. Yeah. All right. Well, Nathan, thank you for spending this time with us. Hopefully our listeners learned a little bit about this obscure investing technique of buying notes. I know I now have a better understanding of what it is. So thank yeah. you. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Nathan. Okay. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to everyone. And of course, uh, please share this episode with uh, whoever you think could benefit from this conversation and subscribe to the podcast. And until then, we'll talk to you next week. Ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.